0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we look at how to construct the core of your investment portfolio. These choices form the backbone of any long-term investment strategy and involve a careful
1: balance of risk and reward. Whether you're building your portfolio from scratch or looking to review your holdings, I want to find out what role stocks, bonds, and other assets can play in growing our long-term wealth. And then later I asked the dumb question of the week. Who actually decides what companies are in the S&P 500? Okay, let's get into it. So one popular way of structuring your portfolio is a core satellite approach. Now as that implies, there's two components there. There's the core, which we'll talk about this week. And then next week, we'll talk about the satellite investments you might make. So let's start off, Romin. What exactly is a core satellite portfolio? Well, the
0: idea here is that you have to kind of deal with human nature. So your portfolio has to be able to deal with your foibles. And these are foibles that we all have. So the way it does that is to have a kind of boring central part of your portfolio where... Yeah, the ramen core. (laughs) That's right. And then you have a kind of more exciting part, which allows you to just experiment with things and learn, really.
1: And as we know, it's very hard to beat the market. So are we sort of saying the core is what in the long term will make you money? And the satellite is where you're going to lose some of your gains, probably.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good characterization. You put the thing which is most likely to succeed long term into the core and really the satellite is there to keep your hands off the core right so really it's a pair of mittens to stop you hurting yourself
1: (laughs) (laughs) and so that implies that what goes in the core is a kind of long-term holding right something we can buy and hold more or less forever
0: yeah so if you look at long-term returns it harvests the returns that you get from being exposed to the equity market over a long period of time keeping it diversified keeping the fees low which is very difficult to do from a cognitive bias perspective, because people are very tempted to pull money out when equity markets fall or to pile money in when we've got a huge rally.
1: Yeah, it's kind of strange, isn't it? But human nature is uniquely unsuited for long term investing. Like you, your instinct is to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. And this, this is just
0: a way of acknowledging that, but trying to craft a portfolio which
1: stops you doing the wrong things. So when we say core satellite, roughly how much of a percentage of our portfolio might be in the core versus the satellites?
0: Well, this is a subjective thing. It really depends on how you're using the core on the satellite. But if you think about it as the core is the bit which is likely to succeed and generate your long term wealth, then I'd say the vast majority should go into the core.
1: So kind of 90% kind of thing, is it?
0: So 90% in core, 10% in the fund portfolio,
1: the satellite, is is what I use. Okay, great. And when we talk about long-term for the core, what do we mean by long-term? Is it how long's a piece of string or is there a kind of minimum holding period?
0: Well, it depends on your age, obviously. But if you do want to have good returns in the equity market and ride the long-term drift upwards, usually a decade is long enough. It's been very unusual to have a decade in which global equity falls. It has happened in real terms in the past, but it's unusual. So if we're talking about a decade or more, then that would be perfect for your core.
1: So maybe let's move on to what we actually might hold in the course. You mentioned equity is often going to be the biggest chunk of it. And is that because the returns of that asset class outperform everything else?
0: Yeah. If we look back historically, you can see that equity has outperformed bonds and almost every other asset class. So in the case of bonds, it's outperformed by about 4% per year on average. And it's beaten inflation
1: significantly over that
0: 120-year period that we've got data.
1: I suppose the thing we're not intuitively great at understanding as humans is compound returns, which is really what drives equity upwards in the long term. And it kind of, the scale of it is hard to imagine. So I looked at a compound return calculator online And for the S&P 500, if you invested $100,000 in 1980 and just let it ride, reinvesting the dividends as it goes, that $100,000 would grow to $12 million by the end of 2021. Now that's in nominal terms. You might say, Michael, what about inflation? Well, I've thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) If you you adjust for inflation, it would only be $3.4 million, but still significantly above your $100,000 starting price. So that's the beauty of it, right? You just do nothing for a long period of time and you can actually ride that drift upwards and it compounds for you. And if you think about that period, we've had wars, we've had multiple financial crises. It's not like it was smooth sailing all the way. And that compounding effect is shocking. I mean, Einstein called it one of the wonders of the world. And I suppose the thing to bear in mind here is fees also compound, right? So for every dollar that you put into your account, it's going to compound over that period of time.
0: But every dollar that you pay in fees won't compound. So the compounding works against you in that case. So that's why a tiny difference in fees can make a huge difference over a long period of time.
1: Yeah, so there's something online, the T-Rex score. Have you seen that?
0: Oh, I love it. Yeah, so this is Larry Bates' T-Rex calculator. And what this tells you is what percentage of your gains you get to keep. So you can put some numbers into it, you can tell it how long the period of time is you'll be investing for, and it gives you a percentage, which is the percentage of gains you keep.
1: Exactly. So I have done that, for that, (laughs) as you might expect, for that same calculation since 1980. And if we paid a 1% fee, you know, we end up with the 12 million, we'd have paid 3.7 million of that away in fees. Ridiculous. Whereas if you say, oh, I've got a 0.1% fee, a tenth of the fee, you're only paying 400,000 in fees and you keep 96% of your gains versus 68% of your gains with the 1% fee. So it makes a huge difference. And None of us wants to make the financial
0: industry richer. We're not so happy paying for the Lambos for money managers. We'd much rather keep that money for ourselves.
1: The only part of the finance industry I want to make rich is me and you, Roman, we class <laughs> as that. And the people listening to this
0: show, of course. Sure. <laughs> So yeah, I think, I think people just aren't aware of the compounding effect of fees. And I think that's why Larry Bates' his calculator is amazing. And often if I speak to people who aren't aware of the importance of fees, we go using their portfolio, put the numbers into the T-Rex calculator, and they're usually absolutely flabbergasted by the result.
1: It is crazy, and it's just not intuitive to us, that kind of math. So you have to sort of look at the numbers in the spreadsheet. Well, I'll put a link in the um, episode description. and You can go and plug your own numbers in and have a look.
0: But the other way of looking at it is if we are entering a period of lower returns, which for many reasons people think we might be, then instead of, say, 9% annual returns. We'll be talking about more like 6% perhaps. And then if you take away inflation, maybe 4%. And if you're paying 1% of that in fees, then immediately you can see that a quarter of your gains have gone And then you get the compounding effect. So it's actually worse than that.
1: Yeah, that's the way to think of it. When you think a 1% fee, you think, oh, 99% for me, nom, nom, nom. But it's not. You've got to think of it as 1% of your returns. So if your returns are 2%, you're giving away half.
0: And then you give away what you gave away last year, compounded as well. That's the compounding thing.
1: I mean, they get paid their fees whether the portfolio goes up or down.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I think it's a little bit unfair, particularly for the asset management fee, that it's based on the amount you invest. I don't think it's fair that it should be ad valorem. You know, it's a percentage of your wealth that you pay away every year. And it's also symmetric because they keep the fee whether they succeed or not, particularly active managers. So, when we're talking about the core portfolio,
1: I suppose we are talking about passive index funds for the most part. Yeah.
0: So, that would be a fee of 0.2% or less that you'd pay for most of those. If it's developed market equity, you could push that fee down to about 0.05 in the US, 0.08 in the UK. Because it's very liquid, so it costs very little to actually maintain the portfolio. Plus they can actually lend out the assets and generate an income as an asset manager, which reduces the fee from your point of view. And I think over your lifetime, Michael, maybe not mine, we'll see those fees fall almost to zero, if not
1: to zero itself, because of this lending fee, which they can generate. So fees are extremely important. But the thing is with passive funds, they also outperform active funds generally. Yeah, and that's the shocking thing, which many people don't realise, is that
0: if you do pay someone to beat the index, 80% of the time that doesn't work. Just look at the S&P index versus active report, and you'll see the horrible statistics about underperformance. And there's also something called a persistent scorecard, which shows that the active managers which did outperform in the past, that outperformance doesn't persist, which is what you'd expect if they were just lucky beating the index.
1: I mean, it's why Warren Buffett and a handful of other investors are so famous, right, is they've done something which is incredibly hard to do.
0: Yeah. And in fact, even Warren Buffett's performance has tailed off recently. So it's very difficult once you scale a fund to carry on beating the index. I mean, Warren Buffett always says that if he had a million today, it would be much easier to generate huge returns, 20% say. I'm not sure whether that's true, but... Still, I think once you scale, once your fund is worth billions, it is much harder to find the
1: opportunities to generate high revenue. The thing is, I'm not Warren Buffett, so my money goes into a passive index fund and we hope for the best. And what else do we have to look for when we're choosing a fund, an equity fund that we might hold in our core?
0: I think diversification is an important one. And of course, nowadays you can just buy literally every stock in the world, pretty much, by buying a globally diversified equity fund. So this would be something which tracks MSCI ACQUI, which is the All Country World Index, that includes emerging markets, or it could be the FTSE Russell Global Indexes, you know, any of those would be fine. There are many of these global indices which you can use, but there are various flavors of them, which kind of let you chop and change slightly. But the point is that it's something which is fairly standard. So that means there's competition between providers and that means the fees
1: are very low. So we don't have to get hung up on exactly which one we're choosing. We just want one that's passive with low fees, nicely diversified and presumably has a good amount of assets under management. So it's not going to close down anytime soon.
0: That would be a good set of criteria. And another one might be that the fund is ESG if you're into that kind of thing. But, you know, we have done a whole episode about that. And personally, I think ESG is a
1: little bit misguided. And what else might we hold in our core beyond some sort of equity fund? So bonds might be another part of it. If you want to have a little bit less risk, you might want
0: to have a global bond fund. Just in the same way that you track global equity through tracking MSCI ACQUI, you might track a global bond index like the Global Aggregate Bond Index, which used to be managed by Lehman. But of course, not anymore, because Lehman doesn't exist. <laughs> so it's now the
1: Barclays Bloomberg Aggregate Index. And so like an equity fund, there's a passive bond fund which tracks this index and has low fees.
0: Yeah, and it's globally diversified. So if one country raises interest rates and the bonds tumble, you won't necessarily be hard hit. But... Just like the MSCI ACQUI index is dominated by the U.S. So I think about 40% of it is U.S. bonds. But still, it is
1: diversified and its weight will change over time as bond markets grow and shrink. And the classic structure, I think, has been a 60-40 portfolio where 60% equity, 40% bonds. And why is that? Is it because they sort of complement each other?
0: Well, it's mostly equities, which is a good thing, because as we've discussed, equity generates a higher return historically than bonds. Now, how much should be in equity in bonds is always a subjective thing. Yeah. It just comes out as the average. So, for example, if you look at the UK life strategy funds, they come in five flavours as you dial up the risk. 20% equity, 40%, 60 80 and 100 And guess which one is the most popular?
1: 60 Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> for once, I got one of your questions right. <laughs> you look very nervous there, Michael. <laughs> but, but the point
0: is that that's what people usually go for, a little bit more equity than bonds. And it's still cautious in the sense that if equity markets fall by 50%, you'll only take 60% of that 50% fall. So it does cushion you from these risk-off events. So it provides that kind of mental cushion. But it still has a big exposure to equity. So this is often used as a straw man, the 60-40 portfolio. People say, does it still work? And do bonds still hedge equity? And I'd say yes to both of those, because people still like 60% equity, 40% bonds. And I think they'll carry on liking that for the same reasons they have in the past. And bonds demonstrably still hedge equity. When we have big falls, government bonds in developed markets
1: usually rally. So what you're saying is the correlation is negative between equity and bonds. They kind of feed on different things. Equities feed on exuberance when everything's going well, and bonds love a bit of misery. Exactly, that's what usually happens. Sometimes you
0: do get correlations. And in fact, if you look at life strategy funds since the market peak at the beginning of the year, they've all tracked each other down with some jiggles up and down, but effectively all of them have suffered because yields have been increasing and equities have been falling. But usually, over a long period of time, that's not the case. And in
1: particular, when you have a huge market fall over a short space of time, bonds really shine. People run to the safe haven assets of which government bonds are one of the biggest classes, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you're scared, you run back to mummy. And mummy,
1: in this case, is... The US government. Uncle Sam. You run to Uncle (laughs) Sam's. What do you call him? The skirt. What do you call it when you run back to your mother? I don't know. She's got COVID, so I'm staying two meters away at least. (laughs) (laughs) So equity and bonds for most people are going to be the largest part of the core. What about cash? Does that play a role? Or is that kind of sort of a bond in a way? Well, cash is like a bond in the
0: sense that it's a zero duration bond. It's insensitive to interest rate movements. So if you look at bonds, government bonds, you've got another choice, which is what duration of bonds do you
1: choose? If you go for long duration, they can be very volatile. So that's when I'm lending money to the government for 20 years, say.
0: Yeah, and then you're very sensitive to interest rate movements because if you've locked in a fixed rate of interest for 20 years and interest rates increase for everybody else, well, you're missing out for every one of those 20 years. And that means the price of your bond fund would fall significantly. Or if interest rates are going down, you get the opposite effect and it boosts your returns if you've got long duration. So if you do think interest rates are increasing, you go for shorter duration. And at the very extreme, when you've got zero duration, it's just like cash in the sense that there's a very small interest rate, but almost no volatility,
1: very little price movement. This is one of the things where we actually can't go negative. You can't have negative duration. Unless you travel in time. That's right. It's always positive. (laughs) Although, no, I won't
0: talk about that. (laughs) You can actually have negative. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not doing it, Robin. We're not doing it. There's a really good story
0: about Hammersmith Council, but anyway. Go on then. Well, there was this famous mis-selling scandal where Hammersmith Council was sold these inverse floaters, they're called, by one of the investment banks. And they lost lots of money because interest rates actually fell rather than rise. And they obviously didn't read the contract terms properly. And then they sued the investment bank for selling them something they didn't
1: understand. Well, I don't understand it. Negative duration.
0: Is It's a derivative which is written into the contract. So it says if interest rates increase, you receive minus something times the interest rate difference on your notional amount. So people would use these as a hedging instrument for increasing rates. So investment banks use these all the time. You know, it's kind of part of the Lego of financial instruments, which
1: banks use all the time to hedge their interest rate risk. I thought this was going to be the episode for beginners. (laughs) (laughs) No, what he said is a negative duration. I couldn't help myself. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Let's not worry about it. Let's pretend that it doesn't exist. I used to live in Hammersmith and from my interactions with the council, I am not surprised they didn't Read the contract. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't have bought it. Don't buy things you don't understand. Okay. So we've got equities, we've got bonds, we've got cash. Is there anything else we might hold in this core? Because I know there's lots of other asset classes, but are they more suited for the satellites? Well, people
0: often say to me, should we have gold in the core or other commodities? Now, the justification for this is that the idea is at least that gold has a negative correlation with equity and it hedges your portfolio. Because you know why should the price of gold depend on exuberance in equity markets? So long term, I think it's true that firstly, gold tracks the rate of inflation, like any commodity. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. I guess the other point is that when people are scared, another safe haven investment is gold.
1: I don't like gold though.
0: Yeah, I think you don't really need it. And that's what I always say, which is that gold's optional, I think, in a portfolio. And it's a wasting asset because it doesn't generate an income. And that means that it's not priceable in discounted cash flow models. So you never really know what the fundamental value of gold is. It's just what people are willing to pay for it, much like cryptocurrency.
1: I mean, I know there is a portfolio design called the golden butterfly, which... Has a significant allocation to gold and has performed well in the long term.
0: But it's interesting, if you look at the back tests, and this was actually created by the creator of portfoliocharts.com, which is a brilliant website. If you haven't played with it, you really should. But they've done back tests which go back to the 1970s. Now, of course, this was the point at which Bretton Woods ended and the price of gold went absolutely crazy. And that was also a time of high inflation. So the question is, will gold rally like it did then? It was literally a once in a generation or two generation rally in gold as the dollar came off the gold standard and then gold found its price, which was incredibly high compared to where it was. So I don't think that's going to repeat itself. There won't be another Bretton Woods ending. Yeah. I think that back test may be misleading.
1: And just to clarify, what's in the golden butterfly portfolio is 20% gold, 20% total stock market, And then 20% to small cap value, which we talked about before, which has outperformed 20% long-term bonds, 20% short-term bonds. The idea is that it can do well in any kind of environment. So we might think about
0: a high inflation environment. Well, there, the gold would do quite well, the equity not so much, and the bonds would be terrible. Or when equities are selling off, the bonds would do well, and the gold would do reasonably well, probably. So the idea is that it's kind of all seasons. Yeah, an all-weather portfolio for you. An all-weather portfolio, which is something that Ray Dalio came
1: up with. Yeah. So that's another popular one that people often think about. So there are lots of options, um, some better than others for the core. And it seems like the main question we have to ask ourselves is what percentage of my core portfolio do I want in equity, presumably global equity? So what kind of considerations might we think about when deciding that? Well, a good way to think about it is imagine a 50% crash.
0: I mean, these happen every now and then, and people always anchor based on the previous high. They don't think I've made 2,000% over the last 20 years. They think I lost 20%, 30 40% relative to the peak last year. So that's a very uncomfortable thing psychologically. It really does make you feel sick when you see your life savings fall. So you've really got to think, in that kind of scenario, what percentage of your wealth would you be willing to lose and still not sell?
1: Because that's the only way you lose, right, is if you sell when
0: markets crash. For globally diversified equity, yes. But in the case of single stocks, say, there you can lose 100% and things don't come back. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's one way to look at it think about it in terms of those crash scenarios. How much would you be
1: willing to lose and still be happy to live your life and not tear your hair out? It's hard to know ahead of time, though. Since the 2008 crisis, we've more or less been in a bull market the whole time, up until the COVID drawdown. So I started investing, I think it was about 2010. So I'd not really known a crash, so I was not sure how I would respond when it happened. Then it did happen. I think it was the fastest drawdown in history, the start of that COVID pandemic. And I'm proud to say I didn't sell, but I'm not to say I didn't have nervousness, right? You think, is this the next Great Depression? Are we going down 90%? Your mind thinks it. Yeah, in the fog of war, you can have these plans and they all kind of dissipate and
0: you're thrown into a state of confusion and fear. And it's very difficult to stick to the plan. But really, that's what really discriminates between people who are successful at investing
1: and people who aren't. Have you seen Men in Black? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it seems like a bit of a non sequitur, but there's a scene in that where Will Smith, who's the new agent in The Men in Black, and he says, oh no, there's an alien battle cruiser beginning to invade, we're all in, we're all going to die. And Tommy Lee Jones, ever the calm actor and voice, says, there's always an alien battle cruiser or a Carillion death ray about to invade and wipe us out. The only way we get on with our lives is to stay calm. And that's kind of investing, right? When you're a new investor, everything seems like the end of the world. Yeah, he's a role model, Tommy Lee. Boring, you see. Boring works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think I think the, the kind of you're right, the biggest decision is how much equity, how much bonds. If you are going to be putting it for a long horizon, then we're talking about decades here, then you put as much as you can into equity. Really the bonds are just there as a psychological crutch. And it's one that you should try and avoid for long term investments.
1: If you're young, it's not really crazy, is it, to have 100% inequity? Not at all. And that makes a lot of sense. So if you're investing for your kids, say, for the next 20 years or more,
0: or you're investing for yourself for the next 20 years or more, then I think 100% equity is quite reasonable. As long as you understand that it will have 50% drawdowns every decade, maybe, maybe less. I mean, it's usually once a decade.
1: As you said before, that's a feature, not a bug. So get used to it.
0: Again, it's just an opportunity to buy more. Because if you are young, you will be presumably having an income which is increasing over time, and you'll be inv- able to invest more of that as time goes on. So if there is a crash and you're generating savings, then you really reach down the back of the sofa during those crashes and invest more if you can. So that's one situation. Another one I often get with people who are in pension craft is they've got a lump sum to invest. They've sold a business, they've inherited money, or maybe they've won the lottery. And they have to invest that lump sum. And that's much more scary because what they're really terrified of is investing it all just before a crash. So in that case, you know, maybe you want to drip feed in order to
1: stop that anxiety about a crash. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you look at the back tests and investing the lump sum, regardless of valuation, all at once actually outperforms the majority of the time, but it's incredibly scary. The downside is big.
0: It's two thirds of the time it works. One third of the time it doesn't. And that one third is when you're just before a crash. And you never know of course when a crash will happen. That's the fundamental problem. People think they know, but they don't. People often say on YouTube that they think <laughs> there's going to be a crash, but they don't know either. So how do you operate in this kind of uncertain environment? Well you just look at the statistics. And I think if you do lump some invest just before a crash Maybe you should do what poker players do, which is a mental process called resulting, where even if something goes against you, you did the best you could when you made the decision and you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. That's what's really important. You just use statistically what's worked in the past. And then if the market turns against you, don't feel bad about it because things will recover. It just takes a while
1: in some cases. And I think you have to be realistic that the thing that would cause you to beat yourself up is if you needed that money, right? So if you had a foreseeable call on your capital, whether that's buying a house, whether that's school fees for your kids or retirement income, you know, if you need the money in the short term, you should not be (laughs) relying on the stock market. And that's
0: why it makes sense to kind of categorise your money in terms of when you're going to need it. If you're going to need it in 10 years or less, then putting it into equity is risky. Because over that, that kind of period, equity often suffers a drawdown. And you could be left with not
1: enough money to pay for whatever it is you need. I think the key behind all of this is to have a plan and probably write it down. But Don't just keep it in your head. What will I do and what will I do if it crashes or it rallies?
0: And stick to it and
1: make sure your partner
0: agrees as well, because I think a lot of disputes happen when... The partner who hasn't been involved in the decision-making process sees equity markets halve, they suddenly look at the life savings and see them hugely depleted. And although it's counterintuitive, what they should be doing at that time is sticking to their guns or even buying more. And if they haven't agreed to that beforehand or looked at the logic about why it works, that can lead to disputes which are probably not great for the long term.
1: Yeah, you need to be on the same page. You need to know what you own and why you own it. And both of you have to agree. So I
0: think looking at the statistics, looking at what worked in the past is really important. And just being aware of that and then building your plan around those statistics, because that'll make you much
1: more likely to succeed. I think the other thing is a lot of people won't be coming to this, you know, with a clean slate. We all sort of picked up knowledge as we've gone and bought this and that. And we've probably got a portfolio, which isn't ideal, so I think the thing there is to really write down all the things you own. And then you, there's lots of tools online. I think they're called X-ray tools. And I know Morningstar has one where you can plug in all the things you own and the proportions. And it sort of shows you um, how much is in different asset classes and what like what's the duration on your bond funds and all that kind of stuff. And then you can assess from there, like, what do I own and what do I actually want to own? What do I believe is going to happen?
0: Yeah, so one of the things I often do is we have power hours, which are one-to-one coaching sessions where people show me their portfolio and we discuss what's in it. I don't advise them, but we can talk through the issues with the portfolio. And I can tell if they've been reading share magazines, because in physics, we have this thing called an accretion disk around a black hole, which is all of the stuff that gets sucked in by the gravity well of the black hole. And I can see this accretion disk of stocks and funds which have been built up over time as they read article after article and simply thought, yeah, I'll buy that, I'll buy that. And then you're left with this mishmash of stuff. So to sort that out, it's usually worthwhile working out the correlation between the funds. And often they've bought the same thing without realising it.
1: Yeah, the number of people I've talked to have bought a global equity fund and an S&P tracker, which is like a huge part, over 50%, right, of the global equity fund.
0: Yeah, or two global equity funds which are actively managed, like, for example, it might be Terry Smith's global equity fund and also the Global Equity Fund managed by Linz Train. Now, those two are highly correlated. They're both popular, actively managed equity funds in the UK. But if you don't work out the correlation between the two funds, you wouldn't realise you're just buying more of the same thing.
1: Yeah, and you're actually lowering your diversification rather than boosting it right you know the most diversified is holding global equity and then everything you buy on top of that is narrowing your diversification
0: yeah and it's amazing that you can do that now you can buy a single fund which is diversified even 20 years ago it would have been much more difficult to do that and then 30 years ago it would have been impossible so we are quite lucky in the sense that we can buy the world just
1: with one fund And as we go forward in time, we've got the plan, we're sticking to the plan, different assets are going to start growing at different rates. So if I started at 60-40, maybe my equity is growing faster and it's now 70-30. So there's a concept called rebalancing.
0: Yeah, so the idea is that let's say you are happy having 60% equity in your portfolio. Now, what will happen over a long period of time is the equity will grow more than the bonds. That's just what you'd expect. So if we look at what happens over, say, 20, 30 years, you'll end up with a portfolio that's almost all equity. Now, that's not what you wanted to start out with. The risk will be higher. In fact, if you do the back test for this, it shows that it's best to do nothing.
1: What, to never rebalance? Yeah,
0: because if you have more equity in your portfolio and equity outperforms bonds, then switching back to bonds is not a good idea, usually.
1: But we'll have more volatility if we just leave it like that.
0: Yeah, so if the whole reason why you wanted 60% equity, 40% bonds was because you wanted to sleep well at night, well... Now it's gone against your original plan. So what you can do is say every year, probably less often, you could just sell some of the thing which has rallied and buy the thing which hasn't. So if you've got a simple portfolio, that's pretty easy.
1: Yeah, you just pull everything back into line. Yeah, you'd sell some equity, you'd
0: buy some bonds. If, If that's the way it's gone, you know, if equities outperform bonds. Or vice versa, if equities crashed and bonds have rallied after a big market move. Then you'd sell some of your bonds and buy some equity. So this is the right behaviour, obviously. You buy the thing
1: which has fallen in value, not the thing which has risen in value. So it promotes the right behaviour, if you like. I suppose there can be tax implications and trading costs depending on where you've held them. So that's something to look at. I've seen another approach, which is rather than, say, annual rebalancing, you just rebalance when your portfolio moves a certain percentage away from your target allocation.
0: Yeah, so that's lazy rebalancing, where let's say that it moves... 5% 5% away from your target allocation, that's when you rebalance. And that might not happen for a very long time if you get fairly consistent returns amongst your investments. So really it really depends on how the market behaves in that case. But it can mean that there are periods when you're rebalancing a lot. So if markets are very volatile, you could be rebalancing you know several times
1: a year. Yeah, that's not ideal because that kind of defeats the purpose of the core in a way where you want to just set it and forget it. And I guess the other thing when we're looking at the long term and what we're holding is, you know, situations and circumstances change. So there's going to come a time where you probably have to adjust what's in your core um, if you're approaching a retirement, say, or, you know, you lose your job or you get ill. And the whole point of the investments is that they do provide you with a buffer. So if you
0: do get ill and you can't work, then clearly you'd need those savings. So don't forget why you're saving. It's for your use. It may be that you die rich, and that's that's not the goal of your investment strategy, unless you maybe want to leave it to your kids.
1: Yeah. So I guess there's two reasons really why you might change your long-term holdings. One is if the reason that you bought the funds are no longer valid, and the other is you know if your life circumstances change and the funds are no longer really meeting your goals. But I would say don't confuse those things with the temptation to sort of meddle.
0: Yeah, the core is supposed to be there and untouched for a long period of time, which is great. It's low maintenance. But, you know, when you first create it, the temptation is to check on it every day. Yeah. And whenever I speak to someone who says that they're checking their portfolio every day, you know that there's a problem. And really, they should just leave it for as long as they can.
1: Yeah, because what are they looking for, right? Yeah.
0: And and invariably, it's during periods when it's volatile and falling. So that's going to be bad from your mental health point of view and probably won't help your long-term returns.
1: There's a story I've heard, which I think is apocryphal, but anyway, it's illustrative. The rumor is it's a fidelity study, which said that the people who outperform in the long-term are actually dead people because they don't touch their investments. Yeah, and you should try and emulate them and pretend to be dead. In fact, that's how I first came
0: across Jim O'Shaughnessy because it was him that quoted that story. I don't think he found the reference for it ever, but uh, that's how I first met him online with Twitter.
1: And Jim O'Shaughnessy is a very successful active fund manager,
0: but he has lots of kind of investment philosophy and broader kind of philosophies about not just investing but but life, which I think are very useful.
1: And I think you asked him the question of, "Oh no, markets are crashing. What should I do?" And his answer was, as always. Nothing.
0: Yeah. And any seasoned investor will tell you that you shouldn't be panicking, that you should be calm and see it as what it is, which is an investment opportunity.
1: And so even if we get the core right when we're looking at all the back tests and it's like, okay, I can buy these things and I can hold them forever and it should meet my goals, what are the risks? There's always risks in investing. So obviously, one we've touched on is behavior. When there's a big crash, you might sell. And also when there's a big rally, you might have a bit of FOMO and try and buy into that rally and move some of your core into the riskier stuff.
0: And there's always a shiny ball syndrome, which is that if something new comes along, perhaps it's marijuana stocks, perhaps it's cryptocurrency, (laughs) you want to pile into that new thing. You can feel the FOMO as it rallies hugely and your boring core portfolio doesn't rally. But that's the whole point of the core. It's like a super tanker which really weathers all those storms including the ones about your irrational behaviour. So that's why we designed it to be the core. It really should be sacrosanct, the holiest of holies, and untouchable.
1: And the other risk, which is more of a sort of philosophical thing, is that the future might well not look like the past. Returns could be lower or, or negative. We could have black swan events which cause a long drawdown, but then there's no guarantees in life.
0: Yeah, I mean, for example, we could have societal collapse, we could have a pandemic which really does wipe out large
1: proportions of society. I mean, I'm less worried about where my stock holdings are if the society collapses. And that's the point,
0: right? In these kind of scenarios, the performance of your Vanguard portfolio will be the last thing on your mind at that point. It'll be survival. But those things are very low probability. So I think that's another thing people should consider, which is always allocate based on what's likely, not on the tail risks. But those risks are, are real, you know, they they exist. And in the past, we have seen
1: periods when equity markets underperformed for long periods of times globally. And I think the point here is you don't get to avoid risk. You just get to choose what risks you want to take. Everything has risk. You could just hold cash, but, you know, inflation is going to be the risk there. Yeah. And the point
0: is also that risk is what generates the return by putting your capital at risk that's why markets reward you that's one way of looking at it and previously we've talked about this which is you're harvesting risk premium
1: (laughs) (laughs) i always like that you reference that such a nerdy phrase but i love it and the final risk i wanted to touch on is maybe another unpredictable thing which is that there may be changes to government policy legal situations, tax changes, which can all have an impact on your returns.
0: And again, this is something which is not predictable. So for example, if you have some government tax scheme which reduces the tax you pay on your investments, so for example, in the UK we have ISAs, individual savings accounts, and self-invested personal pensions, the rules on those may well change in the future.
1: The one I really worry about is that the state pension could become means tested, which means that all this pension savings we've done is effectively just offset. We paid for ourselves and we're not going to get the state pension.
0: Yeah, that's a worry. And But probably, you know, that wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yes, it would. Yeah. <laughs> Universal benefits are the way forward. <laughs> and those other issues around pensions, such as the access age for your private pensions in the UK. That keeps going up. Well, the
0: life expectancy has gone down. So I think, I think the government's going to have to backpedal on that one.
1: So do the best you can. Pick the right things for your core. And then next week, we'll get onto the satellites where the fun begins. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it keeps your hands off the uh, important bits, yeah. We often discuss the core and satellite portfolios and what goes into them in our slack forum in pensioncraft if you want to join this discussion why not join our community you can learn more at pensioncraft.com
1: okay and today's dumb question of the week is who actually decides what companies go into the s p 500 so in fact It's a committee which decides they have the ultimate discretion about
0: what goes in, but there are certain rules as to what can be included. For example, rules about profitability. That's what kept Tesla out of the index for a long period of time. But ultimately,
1: it's that committee which decide what goes in. So I actually read through the S&P 500, <laughs> um, <laughs> their methodology document, all 50 pages of it. Like, you know, you're not the only one that could be a nerd here, Roman. <laughs> and it's really interesting the criteria they have. So the company has to be a US company, first of all. They have to have a minimum market capitalization because they're trying to pick the big ones. At the moment, I think it's about $13.1 billion. They have to be highly liquid and they have to have a public float over a certain percentage I'm not even sure what that means, really. Well, those are the tradable shares. Sometimes
0: shares are held back from the market. Maybe those are the founders of the company which don't let those shares trade. So these are the tradable shares.
1: And then they meet every so often and sort of rebalance, in a way, as we talked about earlier.
0: But I think if there was something which was egregiously wrong, like a huge company in the US which wasn't part of the index, I mean, that would never happen. I mean, Tesla got close. But there were certain criteria which kept it out which was the profitability.
1: When I read through that document, it basically set out all these criteria. And then at the end of each section, it sort of said, yeah, but the committee can actually do whatever it wants and ignore the criteria. So in my mind, that kind of made me think, there's a huge amount of money tracking the S&P 500. Trillions, ridiculous amount of money. Is that index committee that you mentioned now a quasi-regulator almost? In a sense, yeah, because it could be criteria which they choose about the types of shares
0: which are issued. Now, one example is when you have shares issued which don't have voting rights. So one of the new things which they've created is companies may not be included in the S&P 500 if they decide to have a large proportion of their shares without votes. Because one of the ideas behind shareholder power, I guess, is that if you have a share, you have one vote at the shareholder meetings. And if that's taken away,
1: that's a kind of core of the democracy, if you like, of capitalism. I mean, there's a lot of companies that had those dual share structures, as they're called, which are I think they've been kind of grandfathered in for the ones that had them, but the new companies won't be allowed them.
0: That's right. And it's fairly arbitrary the rules around that. So certainly there will be examples where they do act as a regulator. Certain types of behaviour they may choose to promote or, or, or not. But
1: should they have that power? They're not subject to democratic oversight, really.
0: But then you'd have to say, well, who's going to maintain the index? And there has to be some kind of profit incentive for them to do that.
1: How do they make their money?
0: Well, they actually generate fees by giving out the constituents of their indices to the fund managers. So for example, if you and I were to run a passive fund which tracks the S P five hundred, every morning, you know, we'd look at what the weights were from S P. We look to see whether our fund is in line with those weights. Sometimes they remove stocks, sometimes they add them. And then we do trades to match the index. So we pay a fee to S P in order to create that fund. So it's kind of like a subscription service. Exactly. It is a service which, which S&P provides for a fee every year.
1: And I suppose if the S&P 500 started to look wildly different from the reality of the US total stock market, then people would track something else, right? So it's kind of self-fulfilling and self-correcting.
0: Now, you could say there's, there's competition in this market and that that's what keeps it on the level. However, the truth is that it's dominated by three companies. So the big one is S&P Dow Jones indices, which generates the most revenue, but there's also MSCI and FTSE Russell. Those are the big three.
1: It's kind of an oligopoly then.
0: It is, and it's, it's dominated by those three companies. And effectively, it's very difficult for a new entrant to try and create their own indices because there are huge legal requirements around producing an index. You can't just suddenly decide that we're going to create a new index, we're going to publish it because you need effectively an army of
1: lawyers to draft the
0: legal requirements behind it.
1: Yeah, because it's devastating for a company to drop out of an index. You've got to be prepared for that, I
0: guess. Yeah, and there are legal ramifications. I mean, if they do sue you for that, then you've got to have some kind of recourse legally.
1: There is an appeal process
0: built in. So the barrier to entry is absolutely huge. And that's why I don't think there'll be lots of new S&P companies or MSCI type companies in the near future. I mean, you do get some of them, but usually it's in a new asset class. When it comes along, you get a new index provider. And the chances are that'll get acquired by one of the big companies if it does happen.
1: What I would like to see is an index of everything, not just stocks. All asset classes around the world, then we can just buy one fund for everything.
0: It would be simpler, wouldn't it? And there are people who are trying to create such a thing, but it's really difficult to do. I tried to create a similar thing when I was a strategist because... I was working in asset allocation, which is how much you put into each of the different asset classes. And there is no equivalent of a global asset allocation index. So really the best that you have at the moment is something like life strategy funds, which have bonds and equity and are very diversified. So for example, when we run this competition in PensionCraft, we call it the fantasy portfolio competition. The idea is you're trying to beat life strategy. So for the amount of risk your portfolio has, you're trying to choose funds which outperform. So we use life strategy as a
1: benchmark. Yeah, and you've got to beat it on a risk-adjusted basis, which is not easy. (laughs) Well,
0: that's because it's a fairly short period of time. So you could just lever up and... Just win by having lots of
1: leverage. Yeah, which doesn't change the risk-adjusted profile, so it doesn't actually gain you anything in this competition. And that's why we use it. It's a nerd's paradise, the (laughs) risk-adjusted portfolio competition. Join us at (laughs) PensionCraft. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. If you want to get involved in the community, subscribe to the
0: PensionCraft YouTube channel or find us on Twitter Our handle is at PensionCraft.
1: Many Happy Returns is a PensionCraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.